0: Is there ever a time that somebody should be punished, prosecuted, arrested for what they say or what they write? And I want an answer from both. The Village Square, a nervy bunch of liberals and conservatives who believe that disagreement and dialogue make for a good conversation, a good country and a good time. At the Village Square, we talk about politics, religion, and race. You know, the topics your mom taught you never to discuss in polite company. Listen, at the Village Square, we make pigs fly.
1: Welcome to Village Squarecast. This is Vanessa Rouse. Thanks for joining us for Free Speech in the Age of Political Correctness and Bad Manners. During this program, we consider how to walk the fine line between protecting the critical right to free speech and maintaining something quaintly reminiscent of being civilized. We have three incredible individuals here to explore this topic Jonathan Rausch and Chuck Hobbs, plus our facilitator, Rabbi Jack Romberg. If you're a regular listener, you've probably heard from Jack before. He has a long history with the Village Square as a board member and as a founding member of the God Squad. Jack will give you a proper introduction to Jonathan Rausch and Chuck Hobbs in just a minute. This program is part of a 13 episode podcast series called Created Equal and Breathing Free that we're presenting in partnership with Florida Humanities. You can find all 13 episodes right here on Village Squarecast through the end of the year. Next up is one of our new fall programs, Our Declaration with Dr. Danielle Allen. So thanks to Florida Humanities for making this podcast series possible. And thanks to you for joining us. We'd also like to give a quick shout out to Tom Flanagan and WFSU for being incredible neighbors and partners. They recorded this program to air on WFSU. And as we could not find our audio file, they saved us and sent it right over. We're so happy they did, because it feels like this topic is only becoming ever more important. All right, let's get to it. Here's Rabbi Jack Romberg to get things started.
0: We have an amazing panel tonight, and our first panelist that I will introduce is Jonathan Roush. Jonathan is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institute. He's the author of six books, including Kindly Inquisitors, The New Attack on Free Thought, which basically he wrote over 20 years ago and predicts a lot of what we're facing today and a lot of what we'll talk about tonight. I've read the book, so I highly recommend it. His latest book is on gay marriage. Why is it good for gays, good for straits, and good for America, originally, and he is a contributing editor of the National Journal and The Atlantic, please welcome to the Village Square and to Tallahassee, Jonathan (laughs) Roush. John and I have already played Jewish geography in terms of all the people we know from different locations. If you live in Tallahassee and you do not know Chuck Hobbs, you would be all for the better to get to know Chuck. Chuck is a civil and criminal trial lawyer and an award-winning writer. Former prosecutor, his legal career has included his representation of several clients in high-profile trial cases, among them the gambling case of former Florida State University quarterback Adrian McPherson. He is nominated for a Pulitzer Prize in commentary. Uh, Chuck has appeared on CNN, Fox News, the E! Network, and in print and online media, his uh, work includes the, for The Hill and The New York Times. Please welcome to our Village Square stage, Chuck Hobbs. <laughs> so let me begin with a, a story. And from the story, I'll, I'll pose the first question. So my youngest daughter is uh, adopted from Korea. And when she was 11 years old, she and I were sitting in the doctor's office. And I said to her, Abby, what do you want to be when you grow up? And she goes, I want to fly. In fact, she goes, I want to go to the moon. And she stops and thinks for a moment and she goes, I want to be the first woman to ever go to the moon. And then she stops after I said, Gee, that's kind of cool, Abby. And she thinks for another moment and she goes, In fact, if I go to the moon, I will be the smartest person to ever go to the moon. (laughs) And I said to her, how do you figure that? Remember, this is 1993, and she's 11 years old. I said, how do you figure that? And she said, because I'm Asian, and I'm Jewish. Now, you're all laughing because that sounds very cute out of the mouth of an 11-year-old little girl. But let's say that instead of an 11-year-old little girl, she is a professor of maybe psychology or something, teaching at a university. And she comes out with a statement like that to a class filled with college students to make it even harder, maybe at Yale. John, what would be the reaction? First of all, what an incredible
2: privilege it is to be here. I think coming from Washington, D.C., which is in a state of abject dysfunction, <laughs> bordering on hysteria, to see the amazing work that, that you guys at Village Square, especially Liz, are doing, this is a model for what ought to be working across the country. You guys are the pioneers in this room right now. So. Please, please, please keep up this good work. This is, if we're going to change it, it's going to be from the grassroots with folks like you in this room, creating the new model for how we create civic spaces to talk together. So it's an incredible privilege to be here. And thank you all. So, of course, context is important. And, of course, I'm not for being mean to people on purpose. But we live in a society where people often disagree and where they say things that are inevitably going to be offensive to each other. And particularly in a classroom situation, I think you the example you used was a classroom, right? So in a classroom, sometimes for pedagogical purposes, you want to use or need to use language or illustrations. But we now live in a world where Harvard Law is having trouble teaching rape law because the students object that it's too upsetting, that it triggers too many bad feelings to read the case law. Two law professors I know have been hit with restrictions on their ability to teach free speech cases because the Supreme Court opinions included the N-word. And they were told, don't do that. That's too upsetting. They managed to revoke those, but that's what they're up against. At University of Kansas, just recently, this is a graduate class, not undergrad. So these are not children, but the professor used, again, the N-word to illustrate a conversation of, that had started on campus the day before about white privilege, and she was saying, this is the kind of thing I've never had to face. So she used the word, and a student got upset, filed a complaint about her. There was a four-month investigation. She was allowed to keep her job, but she's been, been required to go through a kind of remedial education program. Her teaching will be monitored, et cetera, et cetera. We live in an age when the attempt to create safe spaces for minorities has created a very unsafe environment in too many places for free speech. And I think the answer is the traditional answer. We can talk about why. Speaking as a member of, as a gay American who's come so long, I believe that free speech
0: is the only really safe space for minorities. Chuck, as an African American, as a successful attorney, as a writer, as somebody who advocates... For issues all the time. How do you see the importance of of free speech and its interplay with
3: offensive language? Okay, good evening. Like my friend John said, I am very pleased to be here. This evening I've had an opportunity to uh, fellowship with the Village Square uh, several times in the past year. And each time, uh, one of the things that frustrates me the most is that the time seems to go by so quickly. And uh, I hope and look forward to being able to uh, participate uh, with you in programs in the future. Uh, now, to the substance of the question, I think that uh, Jonathan raised a, a very interesting point with respect to context, and I think that you can get to the to, to get to the crux of the matter. The main issue to me is what is the intent of the speaker? And so when I hear certain things, and let's say there's a professor who is reciting dicta in a law case or uh, that deals with the N-word, or if you're dealing with an English professor who might be uh, going through American literature and you're talking about Mark Twain and some of his writings, I think that some of that can get to the point of just being downright silly. I think that when you look at the era, for instance, in which Mark Twain uh, lived and wrote, obviously those terms were in vogue to a great extent. And I think that to try to minimize that minimizes the impact of really why he was writing and why other writers were writing using terms that to an extent some of us could consider to be offensive. Where I disagree a little bit, though, is that I think that with what I do on a day-to-day basis, I see where, and that's as a criminal defense attorney primarily, you can see where there's a union of offensive language that can morph into offensive conduct. And I think that when you get to that point, that's where I have some pause for concern, and that strictly comes down to what is the intent. Uh, of the speaker and and what comes from it. I think one of the best examples of that was recently, uh, many of you probably saw up in North Carolina, uh, obviously all across the United States of America, there have been Donald Trump rallies where you have a number of young African Americans who are members of the Black Lives Matter movement who have chosen to go and protest the Donald Trump rallies. Now, none of us would sit and disagree that as Americans, uh, you know, we all have a right to protest that which we believe needs to be protested. That much is pretty much clear. But what is happening to a great extent is that you're seeing that at many of those rallies, and you you have a a candidate, uh, Donald Trump, who makes certain comments that are being interpreted by certain people who attend his rallies, not all. I don't want to besmirch all Donald Trump uh, supportees or devotees, but there are some who are just as eager to mix it up and cause problems to those who may be protesting him, as are some of the protesters. And I have to say some, because from what I've been able to read and ascertain, I don't see where the majority of even the Black Lives Matter protesters, for example, are there to start trouble. They are there to force an issue to be discussed that heretofore uh, Donald Trump has neglected to discuss, or actually any of the Republican candidates so far those issues with respect to civil rights are not issues that you hear much in the Republican primary. But at, again, at the end of the day, when you have certain vitriolic comments that are being made by Trump with respect to let's put up the wall or a certain vitriolic comments that are not necessarily racist per se, but they are comments that can be interpreted by the not so bright to, to, to be like, hey, I like him. I like the way he's talking because he's saying the things that I feel and uh and so you once you dig a little bit deeper you're like well what are you really feeling are you you feeling uh racist thoughts and you're just glad that you finally have somebody who has enough money in his pocket where he could care could not care less what people think about him you know those are the things that we have to think about so what it really comes down to is it's not so much the speech per se that causes me trouble it is the conduct that morphs from certain speech patterns that could then lead to either fisticuffs, like the gentleman up in North Carolina who knocked out, when I say knocked out, sucker punched the young black guy as he was being led out by the police. You know, those are the types of things that I fear are going to become more and more prevalent, and they do not lead to an orderly society, which I believe ultimately we all want.
0: So there's a lot of directions we can go right now, but right now the, the first thing I want to do is get an answer from both of you, and that is... Is there ever a time that somebody should be punished, prosecuted, arrested for what they say or what they write? And I want an answer from both.
3: Sure.
2: When? Direct threats are clearly illegal. Putting a contract out on your life is a verbal act, and it's clearly illegal, whether written or spoken. Mm -hmm. direct, targeted campaign of harassment is illegal, though that's true whether I come after you for hours on end every day yelling, Jew, 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 or whether I come after you yelling, genius, 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 that's both forms of harassment. Libel. There are all kinds of provisions that we make in the law to restrict certain boundaries of speech, but what we try not to do is restrict the propagation of ideas Based on the offensiveness of the underlying content of the idea, and that's what we make every effort to avoid.
0: So, other than the obvious cases of libel and threats of violence, is there a time when somebody's speech, in terms of you know, uh, I I I think that somebody comes out and says, "I think that that the blacks had it had it good during slavery," you know, uh, uh, should speech of that nature be limited, or should that be somehow
3: controlled, or should it be punished? I, I would say no with respect to your last example. I think that obviously, to, more, to go back to the example with respect to Donald Trump, I would have liked to have seen him charged, and that's not because of my political positions. Uh, I, I would have liked to have seen him charged but potentially inciting a riot with respect to what happened to that young man up in North Carolina. And again, for those who haven't seen it, if you get a chance, go home and Google it. Again, there was a protester there who was not saying crazy thoughts. He just had his protest sign up. He was being led out in an orderly fashion by law enforcement officers. And you've got a candidate who's on stage saying, throw him out, Throw him! shut him up, throw him out. That's stuff that we've all seen Donald Trump do time and again during the course of his rallies. And so this guy's being led out, and of course the crowd is booing, but all of a sudden there's one guy who is interpreting to throw him out, throw him out, shut him up, to mean, okay, well, I'm going to shut him up because I'm going to punch him in the mouth. And I and I just think that, again, I don't think that, obviously, that was going to happen because even when you see where his campaign manager, Corinne Lewandowski, down at West Palm Beach, arguably touched in an inappropriate or an offensive manner the young woman who was the reporter, um, and that charge has just been dropped by the state attorney's office still, you have to recognize that the nature of our political whatever is that most people are not going to go directly after a candidate for any malfeasance. And again, well, the Hillary Clinton email thing—that's something else that we might be able to talk about uh, later tonight. So,
2: yeah, I would I would worry at a couple of levels. But one is I think it's important to distinguish violence from words. I think it's important to hold the guy accountable who delivered that sucker punch. That's a crime. But once we start defining what politicians say about policy as itself a form of violence, then I think it gets very, very hard because you get into questions of policing what politicians would say. But then on a more practical level, who would love it if Donald Trump got hauled before a court on charges of inciting for saying the stuff he says? The answer is Donald Trump would love it what he's campaigning on is that he is different from everybody else. He says the things everyone else is afraid to say. One of the problems that we've had throughout history, by the way, this goes back to Weimar Germany and the rise of the Nazis, is that you make martyrs out of people when you give them these opportunities. And they're always the worst people. I don't want to opine about Trump here. He's a, different, he's a presidential candidate not going to politics. But you give people a stage when you put them on trial and say someone who believes that belongs in jail.
0: So now it's time to actually dig into some of the nuts and bolts of how John's book describes how um, free speech actually works and how it should work best. So the first question I'm going to ask you, John, is to share your definition of fundamentalism and how it impacts um, the arena of, uh, political correctness, free speech, and so forth.
2: So I wrote this book, Kindly Inquisitors, 23 years ago, when, before most of you were born. It identifies three ideas that threaten the idea of liberal intellectual exchange. That is the, the, the idea that we can all criticize everyone else's belief and what stands at the end of the day as knowledge. Our most social, important human invention ever. More important than democracy, capitalism, this incredible machine we have to create knowledge. It proposes a billion hypotheses a day, sifts through them, and comes up with the one or two that are important advances, relies on criticism, and I said there are three threats to that. One is humanitarian threat, the idea that if you hurt people with words, you violated their rights. That's what we're seeing on college campuses. We're going to come
0: back to that, we'll too. come
2: back to that. Another is the egalitarian Attack which says all beliefs are created equal and should be taught and treated as equal, regardless of what science might have to say. And the third I said is fundamentalist, but I didn't mean religion. I said a fundamentalist, it's it's a temperament, and it's the inability to take seriously the idea that you might be wrong. It goes back as far as human history to the time of Plato and it says, Well, look, I know I'm right. I know you're wrong. Why should I tolerate you? Because we know you're wrong. The debate is over. Toleration just propagates misbelief. It's as, an idea as old as human history and still as appealing as it's always been.
0: So when you tolerate views that most people think are incorrect or crazy, for example, uh, if you're in a time when most people uh, accept evolution uh, uh should you then tolerate people who push creationism? Uh, should you tolerate people who who say that you can be uh, psychologically changed through therapy to not be gay? are those ideas that should be tolerated in the in the in the uh, public square?
2: Yes, absolutely. I grew up in a time. Some of you will remember this until 1973 when I was 13 years old. Homosexuality was in the psychiatric registry as a mental disease. We were insane. It's still Catholic doctrine, Catholic doctrine that homosexuality is intrinsically disordered. This stuff is still very much alive and well, but the way we defeat prejudice is by defeating what lies underneath it, which is fear and misguided opinion. Bad knowledge. If someone thinks, you know, that I'm going to seduce their teenage son or that I'm a threat to civilization because of who I love, they will hate me. And the way to go after that is not by suppressing the speech. It's by replacing the ideas with better ideas. I I tell people it's like using hate speech laws to reduce hate is like battling global warming by breaking the thermometers.
0: Hmm. So one more question I'm going to throw to you, John, and then I want, Chuck, your reaction to uh, what I posed to John. Out of your book, uh, you say you call this a very false argument. When somebody says, hey, you're not black, you're not gay, you're not Hispanic, you would never understand what I'm going through. Uh, therefore, you can't understand why this view, this opinion has to be uh, uh not tolerated
2: So at one level that's obviously true. I've never been African American, I've never been female and of course that's true at one level but the question to me is going to be we are all very different. We all live in profoundly different lives and experience And the genius of, of what I call liberal science, this huge network of interaction that we have based on the give and take of expression, is that we talk across our differences, and we don't disqualify each other. We're not supposed to disqualify each other by saying, wait a minute, I can talk on the subject of homosexuality, but you can't because you're straight. Because once I do that, I cut off all of the learning that I can do by listening to your perspectives about me.
0: So Chuck, my question directly to you, my friend, is... Am I disqualified from talking about African-American issues
3: and issues of race because I'm white? No you're, no, you're not. And I think that, again, like John said, that is very limiting. But one of the reactions I have to uh, what Jonathan said is that, and I've got one of my uh, good friends, and I don't know if we get to say that often, but Judge Terry Lewis is in the uh, audience today, and I've tried a number of cases in front of Judge Lewis. And at the end of each trial that we have in uh, courts here in the state of Florida, uh, there's a there's a segment in which after the judge gets his jury instructions that he talks about for over two centuries, we have uh, agreed to live by a constitution, uh, something to that effect. And so I just want to say that while the framers of the Constitution may have been imperfect, uh, many of them slaveholders, things of that nature. At the end of the day, that constitution, particularly the First Amendment, continues to endure and is one of the best pieces of law that we have. And I want to segue that into what my real concern is about offensive speech, okay? You cannot control someone disliking you on account of you being a woman or you being black or you being homosexual. You can't control that. And if people want to get on social media or if they want to pin an article saying, I don't like blacks, I don't like Muslims, I don't like women, uh, whatever that may be, you can't stop that. People have a right to say those things. Where I have concern, both as a lawyer as well as a writer, is with respect to when those theories start to try to creep into our local or state laws or even on a federal level. So when you hear someone saying, I don't like Muslims, I am afraid of Muslims, one minute, and then the next minute is, I think that there should be a registry enacted whereby all Muslims must register and they should be monitored by the federal government. That's when I'm like, wait, hold up, wait a minute, that's, that's just... Farther than I am willing to go. And I think that when you look over the last 150 years, there have been areas within which offensive speech, offensive thoughts have slowly but surely morphed to comport with what I believe the, the, the true tenor of the Constitution is. Give you an example. Uh, back during the Dred Scott case in 1857, Chief Justice Roger Taney made a very, uh, despicable comment with respect to the black man has no rights that a white man is bound to respect among other things that he said in the dicta of that opinion now of course that would pretty much be one of the underlying bases for the civil war that was fought four years later from 1861 to 1865 but then we know that after 12 years of reconstruction we have uh, a period that became known as jim crow that was enacted throughout the south uh and what have you, whereby many of the laws that were enacted, the 13th, the 14th, and the 15th Amendments to provide citizenship and to provide the right to vote to African-Americans were summarily denied by every single state in the South. Okay? And so those types of thoughts with respect to the black man has no rights that whites are bound to respect, it's only been 50 some odd years that we finally got to the point where those rights that were due to us uh, per the Constitution are constantly and consistently, to an extent, being enforced. There are some people who can take some issue with that and say, well, you still have attempts for voter suppression and things of that nature. But again, it's those offensive thoughts where people think that blacks were inferior, uh, we don't have to respect black rights, that then morphed into offensive laws in the form of Jim Crow laws that took almost 100 years to dismantle, and some of the after effects were still feeling those shocks uh, within many minority communities. Over the course of the last 50 years. So that is my problem, uh, with respect to offensive conduct, offensive thoughts. Think what you want. But when you go as a legislator or as a congressman or even the president of the United States and you start to advocate laws that would morph your bigotry into the, the rule of law, I have problems with that. And I'll fight against that for the rest of my life.
2: We, we, we sir, certainly agree on the importance of, of policy as something that is not sacrosanct, something we all need to worry about and work on changing. To say, for example, that something offensive like Jews control the financial system is offensive but should be legal, but to begin confiscating the bank accounts of Jews and shutting down their businesses as the Nazis did is a whole different story. So we agree on that distinction. I would just point out one thing to think about, which is my understanding of history is that a very large piece of jim crow was silencing african americans that in the first 30 years after the civil war you had african americans in elected office you had newspapers and other outlets and you had a lot of free speech and the first thing that jim crow people did was shut that down so you you got not you but people got lynched if they tried to protest this this was a terroristic anti-free-speech campaign for which you paid with your life if you were on the wrong side of it, white or black. And the biggest change or a big change happens when African-Americans are able to use their voices and their tongues. And you all know who I'm thinking of here, the man who changed the world with his eloquence. But I would argue that it was the ability to express these ideas that were so offensive to white Southerners, which ultimately got us out of that bind we were in
0: the the question i guess that i would ask you john the the concern that i hear from chuck is how do you how do you prevent that bubbling up of free speech of all those ideas how do you prevent that from turning into a governmental you know legislation that that starts to be end up in oppression uh, that, that, I think, is the fear that, that, that Chuck is expressing. So
2: uh, bad ideas can, can work either way. They can wind up going out in society where they infect a lot of people. I actually think that usually doesn't work because most people are fairly good-hearted, and in the long run, truth wins out. It did in the case of gay Americans. All we had was our voices. We had no votes, no money, massive discrimination, but we were able to tell our stories. So I think it takes a while, but people eventually respond to better arguments as opposed to worse arguments. But the, those bad ideas can also morph in a different way, which is they can morph into politicians saying, we're going to embody these bad ideas in law, the point you were making earlier. And that's actually much easier to do because it only takes a majority of both chambers and someone to sign it to write a really bad law like the Alien and Sedition Act. The first major test of American democracy was a free speech test, and we, we flunked it. And it was a complete disaster. Destroyed the presidency of John Adams. As well it should have. So the other thing we need to be careful of is letting these, these bad ideas convert themselves into law, and that's why the Constitution is important. But what, what I argue about, you won't hear me talking a lot about the First Amendment, because what worries me more, concerns me more, I shouldn't say worry, is the ethic underlying the First Amendment. It's so counterintuitive. The greatest idea in the history of the human species, bar none, is that society and individuals are better off when people can say obnoxious, offensive, wrong-headed, hurtful things. That was the great idea of John Locke and the Founding Fathers and it is so counterintuitive that First Amendment advocates and free speech advocates will need to get up every day for the rest of our lives and our children's lives and our grandchildren's lives and start from scratch defending it a burden we just cheerfully bear.
0: So I I do want to now open up for uh, two or three questions, and then when we're done with a couple or three questions or comments, then we're going to move the conversation to what's been going on on college campuses.
4: While I'm walking, John, uh, please give examples when a direct threat is a crime, and to Chuck, which of these would be crimes in Florida?
2: I have a gun or weapon in my hand, and I say, I'm going to kill you if you don't give me your wallet. That is clearly not protected free speech, and that is a felony in every state in the union, yeah?
3: Yes, that would be aggravated assault. (laughs) (laughs) Let alone just being aggravated.
2: (laughs) And and by the way, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think in most states, I don't actually have to physically touch you to commit aggravated assault. The credible threat... To get the behavior I want itself constitutes aggravated
3: assault. If the victim reasonably believed the the, the person had the opportunity and the means with which to carry out the threat, absolutely. uh, It could be charged in that way. Um, How do you see the future of free speech, especially given the history of especially hate speech frequently? And what do you think we'll look back on in 50 years of our current status of free speech? And what will we be embarrassed of? I'll take a quick stab at it. One of the things that disturbs me the most is if you ever go to when i write for the hill or if i have an article that appears in the Tallahassee democrat or wherever when you go to the comments section (laughs) man you got to stay out my dad used to always tell me that son you have to have alligator skin and i'm pretty thick-skinned no doubt about it uh insults generally don't hurt me but man sometimes uh, they put that to the test you know i've been called everything but a child of god uh just because my opinion (laughs) might be something that's contrary to what the, the writer is. And I think that to a great extent, the anonymity that the internet provides people to a great extent allows for some just vicious attacks uh, to come forth, uh, which is why I like the websites where they force you to use either your Facebook identifier or your Twitter identifier, because I think that generally speaking, when people have to have their profile pickup and their name out there, they're a little less likely to to, to give you an all caps 800 word, expletive laced <laughs> critique of whatever it is you wrote. Uh, and so I think that social media to a great extent is a beautiful thing in that it allows, uh, it's made the community smaller. I know that's cliche, but you know, you can speak to people all across the world on the important issues. But I also think that, uh, to a great extent, it is, is the wild, wild west, uh, to a great extent on the internet, uh, so much so that I have had to, block people on Facebook, I've gotten... He's threats. pointing at me, have you blocked me? No, 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 not you, not you, yeah, yeah, but no, I've gotten death threats, um, all sorts of things that have come forth on social media because people are a little bit out of control and uh, and that's just something that concerns me moving forward, uh, which is, again, that I'm not sure if that's going to ever improve, like, because the cat is out the bag, so to speak.
4: So I believe, Chuck, you are Karnak the Magnificent, for, for people old enough to know that reference, does the anonymity on comment forums on the internet cause or allow incivility should comments on casual articles on the internet be restricted or disallowed
2: <laughs> so we've got a new village square has a completely new protocol which is answer questions before they're asked <laughs> we're working in reverse in reverse chronological order here the introductions will come at the end um, you're talking to the national co-chairman of the comment or vote movement, which consists of, we've only got two people, but we're, we're going to grow, and <laughs> our, our motto is trolls belong under bridges, <laughs> and our platform is a constitutional amendment denying anyone who leaves an internet comment the right to vote in any federal, state, or local election <laughs> for a period of two years. And our thinking about that is you can ruin democracy or spoil the Internet, but you can't do both. <laughs> so I'm not a fan of anonymous Internet commenting. To the question that the gentleman in finance... Yeah, had I do out, want,
0: I want to hear your answer to that.
2: So where are we? You know, we're at a turning point, but we're always at turning points on this issue. I tell people in the short term I'm always pessimistic because there are always new developments. We're about to talk about universities which look threatening. But in the long run, I'm optimistic because the climate for speech is so much better in the U.S. than it was when I was growing up in so many ways. 1953, the first gay magazine that talked about policy came out and put on its cover an article objecting to government censorship because talking about gay issues, even being for gay marriage, was considered a violation of the obscenity statutes. And the postmaster general banned this magazine. Couldn't distribute it through the mail. They they killed it. They could do that in 1953. A few of you were alive then. That was totally legal. Supreme Court didn't strike that down until 1958. In the 1920s, the greatest novel by many lights of the 20th century, Ulysses, was banned in America and burned. That's not so long ago. So on the whole, I think it's kind of one step back but then two steps forward and in the long term i'm optimistic but but the only reason i'm optimistic is every generation we repeat the same conversation and we start over there are signs now that support for freedom of speech is slipping among college freshmen in a way yeah, that is and, new so and, and you know, we look at next. that
0: we worry a bit yeah so so now i'm going to move on to that since you gave me the uh you want to do one more
4: Actually, there was one that was kind of similarly related on the heels of that. You both agree that bad speech is bad if it becomes law. What about bad political ads? They get bad people elected. Should ads be more regulated?
0: Good question.
3: I would say no. I believe that candidates have the right to espouse whatever their beliefs are. Uh, and we as the voters have a right to accept or reject those candidates based upon that. But again, in terms of how does that work, if you're saying that, Chuck, that seems inconsistent because if you get a bad candidate who's elected and then that elected candidate helps create bad law, that's one of, again, the beauties of the founding fathers creating our three-tiered uh, system of, of government. Because I think that the judicial branch, to a great extent, serves as the backstop, so to speak, to try to weigh whether certain laws that are coming out of either the state legislatures or Congress comply with the dictates of the United States Constitution, I think, but for the judiciary, we would be in in huge trouble.
2: Yeah, what he said.
3: (laughs) Gee, I want you to start fighting, guys. Come on,
0: you know. Okay, let's now start talking about, because, John, you mentioned this, what's happening on college campuses and the list of things that have people worried about college students today and their approach to... Uh, free speech versus please don't hurt my feelings is, is becoming very, very troublesome to, uh, many commentators, to many people in the media, to many, uh, political commentators, to many social commentators. So let's explore for a minute, a minute what happened at Yale, uh, this past fall. So at Yale, there are residential colleges and Erica and Nicholas Christakis, they are two professors who are in charge of one of the residential colleges. And a little bit before Halloween, an email went out from the university to all the students, asking them to be um, to you know to be sensitive, not to wear costumes that were offensive to minorities. For example, don't wear a costume that involves blackface or war paint. Boy, tell that to the Seminoles around here. Um, you know, to, to be sensitive about costumes. Well, then Erica, Erica Christakis, Christoskis, sent an email to the residents of the college that she and her husband were in charge of. And let me read a good chunk of her email. I wonder, and I am not trying to be provocative. Is there no room anymore for a child or a young person to be a little bit obnoxious, a little bit inappropriate, or provocative, or, yes, offensive? American universities were once a safe space, not only for maturation, but also for a certain regressive or even transgressive experience. Increasingly, it seems, they have become places of censure and prohibition. And then she also writes, Nicholas says, her husband, if you don't like a costume someone is wearing, look away or tell them you are offended. Talk to each other. Free speech and the ability to tolerate offense are the hallmarks of a free and open society. Anybody know what the reaction to that email was? Okay. Uh, the professors were hauled basically in front of the administration by the students, condemned. One w- woman uh, is now famous for her confrontation, uh, uh, screaming at Nicholas uh, in apparently some area of Yale, which you can identify, John, and I can't identify. I'm sure you've seen the video. Yeah. Okay. Stillman College Courtyard, Stillman College Courtyard. So and uh, and uh, another student commenting on this whole incident said, I don't want to debate. I want to talk about my pain. I'm gonna ask both of you what's wrong or what's right with all of this?
2: Well, here's the problem. How many of you have kids in college or have paid a college tuition? So you're paying like fifty, sixty thousand dollars. The students and the parents are the customers, and Yale is advertising its residential colleges as I think they use this phrase. Veritable paradises. I know it. So students who go to Yale these days are expecting something a little like a Disney cruise. A protective environment. I mean, they're paying for this, right? And I sympathize with that to some extent. But the traditional mission of a university is to foster the rough and tumble of dialogue and discussion. So the Christakis were taking the very traditional view, which I hold, of what universities ought to be for inculcating the critical spirit and the ability to stand up for your beliefs and argue back. And these students are talking about a newer model in which the role of the college is to continue the protection that these young people have enjoyed until then, protections which their parents have extended to them. And these things are coming into direct conflict on campus in a way that we hadn't seen before. We used to see Radicals on the faculty attacking free speech and students being either indifferent or protective of it in the last three years We've seen a lot of student campaigns against microaggressions Which is a term of art for anything they might find offensive and demands for punishments and firings and I know Professors now who are unwilling to even speak on campus outside the classroom for fear that they'll get investigated the investigation is the punishment So the message I'm trying to bring people is not a message about law It's about who we should try to be My solution to this, if I could get it adopted, would be a trigger warning. But not on every course. You've heard about trigger warnings. You know, you're gonna, you're supposed to put a warning on anything someone might find offensive. I want a single warning for the whole university. And it'll say, it'll be on the front page of the catalog. It'll be on the website. It'll be on the brochures. It'll be on the application. And it's gonna say warning. Although at this university, we expect polite and reasonable behavior and conduct, at this university, at any time, you may, without further notice, be subject to exposure to ideas, opinions, and images that are offensive, wrong-headed, obnoxious, racist, despicable, vile, and deeply offensive. We call this education. But it's an uphill battle.
3: Chuck? This is a tough one for me because on on, on one hand, I will be forty four in a few weeks, and I'm old enough to be. I, I would consider that my generation. When you agree, Brother Stallworth, my good friend Theo Stallworth here, we we were raised probably a lot more like our parents' generation was. My parents both were born during World War II, to to an extent that you remember. Like I said earlier, the alligator skin aspect, certain things that certain students across the country, when I read these articles or these incidents, are complaining about, to me, seem very minimal, okay? They don't seem major at all, and I wonder whether the generation that's coming up, the one that my generation is raising, that are in college now or on their way to college, whether to an extent they are soft. And What I mean by that is, is someone in a classroom, again, going back to the earlier example, making commentary about the works of Twain, as opposed to someone hanging an effigy, uh, a black male uh, from out, outside of the, the, the fraternity house. Uh, obviously, one is extremely offensive, and if not threatening, like we've talked about tonight, whereas the other is something that, again, inspires the whole situation with respect to education. And, and I think that two incidents last year crystallized this, in in my opinion, has made me think about this a lot. I have a niece. uh, My daughter is only six years old, but my niece is a sophomore up at Amherst College in Massachusetts. And, you know, I get to talk to her a lot with respect to some of the things that she's experiencing as a young black woman attending a school with a very small black population. And these things are fascinating to me, mind you, because, again, I grew up here in Tallahassee. Uh, I went to Morehouse College, uh, the alma mater of Dr. King as an undergrad, which is all black. I went to graduate school at FAMU, which is predominantly black. And so it was when I went to the University of Florida for law school that I actually had an opportunity to you know, be in a mixed environment and have an exchange of of ideas with individuals of different races that may have been different from my own. And so I get to talk to my niece about that. I'll come back to my UF experiences at another point, but I get to talk to her about what's going on now. And to a great extent, even my niece, as brilliant as she is, I even see that she might be a little bit soft in regards to the things that she takes offense to, as opposed to the things that I see as a 43, almost 44 year old man as being credible threats. Uh, case in point, last year, how many of you remember out at the University of Oklahoma, uh, the young guy that got in trouble with the SAE fraternity because he said a chant about there never be an N-word SAE? It went viral. Everybody was upset about it, uh, rightfully so, to a great extent, but even in his making that comment in a fraternity chant as upset as i was with respect to thinking how stupid can this 19 or 20 year old kid be to do that as a frat guy myself like jonathan is saying when you're 19 and 20 you're stupid and uh <laughs> to a great extent and 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 i think that what kind of protected our generation is that some of the stupid things that we did on the yard uh, on campus uh in the fraternity Thank God there was no Instagram, no Snapchat, no Facebook, because, again, many of us might not be in the positions we're in now if people could have seen some of the th- stupid things we said and did. So, again, that's why I say this is a tough one for me, because on one hand, I don't want to see conduct that makes any student feel as if they are unwelcome on someone's campus. What would you do about, say,
2: um, a blackface situation, a fraternity house that does a blackface party? How would you want to see that dealt with?
3: I would like to see that. OK, I'm a member of Kappa Alpha Psi fraternity, which is a predominantly black uh, fraternity that was founded at Indiana University in 1911. And what I would like to see is if I was a dean of, let's say, students at a college and that occurred, I would really like for an opportunity to have a forum within which the members of the fraternity, the sorority that through the Black Party could sit down and talk with individuals like me or others who, can can put into perspective why blackface is offensive. See, I really believe that to a great extent, because kids are young and and, and we have gone away to a great extent in our modern education system from a, a, a focus on civics, a focus on American history. Everything is teaching to the test, everything is focused on STEM, math, math, science, science, things of that nature. You you don't have kids going into college who have a real clue. As to why blackface would be offensive, what Al Jolson and the the jazz singer was about, Uh, why those type of limiting situations used to make my grandparents feel not only embarrassed, but also marginalized them to a great extent. And I think that when you have an opportunity to sit with young white students and explain that to them and to the black students to a great extent, because like my niece, for whatever reason, my sister who raised her primarily did not give her the same kind of raw teachings with respect to racial history that we got from our parents on a day-to-day basis. And so I think it's out of ignorance. And so not like, okay, you're suspended, get off the campus, you have to be gone by five o'clock. I don't think that rises to that level, but I definitely think it's an opportunity to to teach why certain things are offensive to other segments of the population in hopes of uh, fostering some type of better dialogue.
0: So something that you mentioned, Chuck, makes me think of an interview that I listened to with uh, Jonathan Haidt, who has been on this platform and been at Village Square events. He wrote The Righteous Mind. I know, John, that you know Jonathan Haidt. And I listened to an interview between him and Sam Harris, where they were discussing all of these incidents on campus. And Haidt was uh, also talking about uh, an accusation he had to face in his own classroom that took two months out of his life. And the conversation turned to how are kids different today? You said something, Chuck, that you wonder if the generation coming up is softer. Let's play with that a little bit. Is, is there something different about kids being raised today? Is there something different about, about what they're taught? And, and why is it that we seem to be in a generation in the last few years that is just so different in how it handles these issues than even, you know, five, seven years ago?
3: think that, and I can, as an African-American male, I can only come from the perspective that I've lived. I think that to a great extent, that generation that was my parents' generation, yes, we got a lot of information from them, but to a great extent, those who are able to make it into the middle classes and the upper middle class and some even wealthy, I think that to kind of shield many of their children from the realities of, like i give you an example. My, my dad grew up in Jim Crow, Miami uh, in the 1950s. My mom grew up in Jim Crow, Tallahassee, right here. And so from five, six years old, I knew all about the black fountain, white fountain, can't look whites in the eyes when you're walking downtown, uh, getting food out of the back of a restaurant because you couldn't come in the front door. And eat. those things fascinated me as a five or six year old kid. And my parents taught me that not necessarily to foster any level of hatred toward whites, but to help me understand and appreciate that when we go to McDonald's or when we go to uh Western Sizzling, used to be my favorite restaurant when I was a kid around here, when we go and we can go through the front door and sit down and eat, that don't take that for granted, right? But dad also taught me something else that I'll remember for the rest of my life. Again, with the alligator skin thing, he always told me that it was a common occurrence for him and guys his age to hear the N-word being said at any point in time. Or his father, who was a construction worker down in Miami, being called boy or... Disrespected by even younger white men who were younger than he was at the time. Those things stuck in my dad's head for the rest of his life. But he also informed me, Chuck, don't ever let that word or that comment offend you to the point where you lose your, your mind and you get to the point where you feel like you have to go to fisticuffs because I had a temper when I was a younger guy. I mean I still do now but I have a bar license and I have to keep so like when, <laughs> when 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 certain things happen you have to just bite your tongue and um just be like oh okay but um but still he was like don't let the words get you to that point but he was clear that if somebody ever like physically assaults you or something like that then you defend yourself like you should whereas nowadays that taught me again to let a lot of stuff roll off of me whereas nowadays any little comment any little look can be construed as offensive by this younger generation. And again, I think it's because many do not appreciate what real racism looks like.
1: Hi again. It's Vanessa here, your podcast host. Oh, I love this program so much, and I hope you did too. Let's hear it for Jonathan Rauch, Chuck Hobbs, and Rabbi Jack Romberg. As we close out today, I'd like to refer back to something Jonathan said about using hate speech laws to reduce hate is like battling global warming by breaking the thermometers. That makes so much sense to me. And it reminds me of something Liz said in our very first podcast episode. She said that if these sensitive topics are left unresolved, if they can't be discussed, they don't go away. They just go underground. And this also reminds me of something we heard in episode 40 from Amanda Ripley, author of High Conflict. Amanda told us that two out of three Americans say they have political opinions they're afraid to share. And half of Americans have stopped talking to someone because of something they said about politics. Two out of three Americans are afraid to share. I think that is rather alarming And it highlights how important it is for all of us to see what we can do to try to understand the people we share this country with. You know, I can definitely identify with that silence. And I feel like I'm reasonable and open minded. I know, don't we all? And, you know, I care about the diverse people in my country and I don't consider myself extreme. Yet still, there are things I'm uncomfortable saying in certain groups, and depending on the situation, I really might stay quiet. But at the same time, I am very lucky to have some people in my life who I can be open with and who help me explore my thoughts. And you know what? It's those conversations that help me grow and sometimes allow me to shift my perspective because I was able to talk about it with people I trust. And I can tell you, it's not always comfortable, but I do always feel better on the other side of it. I remember one time in particular, when I was wrestling with an issue, and I decided to discuss it with a group of five or six very liberal friends, I sort of knew I'd be the oddball out on this issue but I didn't realize just how oddball I must have seemed to them. Well, thankfully, we had many years of friendship to build on, and I trusted them completely. And so I took the risk. We had a great conversation. I learned some things. Maybe they did too. And their input helped me understand my own position. Now, I didn't move completely to their position, but I was maybe a couple steps closer and certainly more open minded about it, more ready to think and engage as I move forward in life. I have thought about that experience hundreds of times and feel just so grateful that we all navigated the situation with respect and empathy and openness. And I believe it was being together in person and the foundation of relationships that made it successful. Does that sound familiar? It's exactly what we do at the Village Square. We help build relationships between people in our community so they can come together to discuss diverse viewpoints. And we typically do it in person over a meal when there's not an active pandemic going on. You can visit villagesquare.us to learn more about our unique approach that has earned national recognition and has become a model for communities across America. That's also where you can sign up for our newsletter to stay up to date with all that's happening at the Village Square. We'd like to offer our sincere thanks to Florida Humanities for partnering with us to present this podcast series, Created Equal and Breathing Free which is airing right here on Village Squarecast through the end of the year. Also, thanks to Brian Deloge and Lee Hinkle for helping to make these programs possible through their generous donations. We appreciate you listening to free speech in the age of political correctness and bad manners. Until next time, we challenge you to reach out with an open heart and mind to someone who doesn't look or think like you. It changes everything. We'll talk to you soon and thank you so much for listening to Village Squarecast.